Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia. Right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio. In the morning you are with Lyle and... Daniel Collier. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a blessing to be here and I'm extremely pleased to be a part of this. Super excited to have you part of the show, Daniel. Tell me this morning, what is one thing you are thankful for today? My beautiful wife and children, my supportive family, and how they are just making my transition into my journey with Christ so much easier. That's absolutely amazing. And of course, uh, a great thing to be thankful for. I just do want to note right now, on our thankfulness section, you only get to be thankful for the same thing once. See, now you've used that one. <laughs> it's a daily occurrence, though. So a, you I can know. Just this is a, for the rest this of the is year. a daily occurrence. This is a daily occurrence. I know. This is a daily occurrence. But that one's used. Okay. So tomorrow, you know. Something new. Something I'll spend new. some time researching to figure what the next one will be. Yeah, then Daniel's going to be with us for most of the week, so or all of the week. So that's going to be. Uh, we're, we're we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, amen. Yeah. So I'm going to actually. You know what I'm thankful for this morning? What's that? I'm thankful you're here. Praise God. Because if you weren't here, I would be here by myself. And I think that all of our listeners are probably thankful that you're here as well. <laughs> <laughs> because if I was here by myself, then. It might sound a little bit monotone. Uh, I think you could pull off a one-man show. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. It's sort of, um, I've given it a go a few times and yeah, it, it, it struggles. Well, how are you with character voices? Maybe you could dialogue with yourself. Terrible. <laughs> I can do a couple of accents really badly. <laughs> like really badly. Have That'd a crack every now and then, but sure. yeah, not too much. Anyway. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, Daniel, let's have some positively different news. All right, this one's a little bit close to my heart because of how much it rings home to somebody that was in my life until recently. So in Minnesota in America, there's a teacher by the name of Kelly Klein, and she is actually battling a recurrence of ovarian cancer. Ooh, She stuff. is a school teacher, kindergarten teacher, and during her chemotherapy, she is online every day with her students on Zoom to continue to teach them in the classroom. Wait, 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 wait. So she's sitting in the hospital room having all kinds of really, really toxic stuff pumped through her body. Very invasive procedures, and she's still has the strength and the heart to carry on to educate her students. So, 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 yeah, okay. So that's, yeah, that's like hero stuff right there. <laughs> it's like hero, hero level school teacher. Way to set the bar. Yes. How bad do we look right now? Oh, terrible, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> wow. She was actually diagnosed five years previously and she took a bunch of leave then in order to treatments. Yep. Get, get it sorted. It. With the recurrence, she's got to the point where she said, well, I'm not, I'm not going to take any more time off. And she actually draws strength from being there for her students, which is just a beautiful thing. What, a, what an incredible um, example that is, life example and life lesson for those kids. Amen. Yep. And that, the part how of did, what she, how did what she with, said too, she yeah. said, you know, not to give up. You know, she could go down the path of why me, why me, but she wants to show them that there is strength in battling against something like this. And the, the reason I really enjoyed this story and it touched my heart so much is actually from one of our um, brothers, Michael Heath, who passed away from cancer last year. Yes. 
and he was involved in Pathfinders while I was the Pathfinders director. For those that aren't aware, Pathfinders is... Kind of uh, like Scouts. Yeah, Scouts, but with a biblical twist. So devotionals and prayers and... Christian Bible Scouts. Studies. Yeah, it's wonderful. And so he was a part of it as a senior counsellor. And we'd have a meeting probably once a month, leadership meeting, good excuse to get together and have dinner and catch up and fellowship and talk about what we we're going to do for the next month where regarding camps or whether it was the honour system that we were doing or just having the kids catch up for a session. And he would turn up with his little chemotherapy bag attached to him. He would come along to the meetings while he was getting his treatments going and he looked tired, he looked run down, but he always had a smile on his face. He's got, he's got to be one of the bravest and strongest people I've ever met in my life. And I'd say to him, you don't need to be here. We can just bunch it all together and send you an email. And he said, oh, you know, want to come along, do it for the kids. And he loved the fellowship, loved being involved. And he recognised the importance of Christ in these children's lives so much that he would be there to be a part of it. And it just, anytime I'd have an issue in my life that I was whinging about a first world problem, I'd look at an example of somebody like Michael who battled cancer for nine years with a smile on his face. And I'd just tell myself to shut up because I had nothing to complain about. And the other thing I think is worth mentioning with Michael, and, and a great tribute to both this this teacher and Michael as a uh, Pathfinder director, that um, he when he was first diagnosed, he was given six months to live. That's right. And he outlived that by nine years. Yeah, praise God. And the reason that he outlived that by nine years, I believe, and, and, and this is what's going to be you know on the side of this school teacher here that you're mentioning, is the fact that he was driven by his purpose in sharing Christ with others and by helping other people. Mm-hmm. And so your school teacher right there, she is driven to help other people. She's driven to help her students. And I don't think there is anything more effective that you can have in your life to actually keep you alive and keep you going um, when, yeah, this really kind of heavy heavy news comes along. Amen, for sure. Yep, 100%. All right, what else have we got happening around the world? Okay, we have another human interest story. So there is a man on the Gold Coast who is blind, non-verbal, and over six days he walked 96 kilometres to raise money for child victims of domestic violence. Oh, wow. His name is Gary Cooper. Wait a minute. You're saying the guy's blind? Yep. And he, how far did he walk? 96 kilometres. How do you walk with a, with a blind dog or? He had his mother and one of his carers went along. It was a six day journey. So did they walk as well? Yes. They went from Pelican Waters to Noosa. Right. In, on the Gold Coast. So, so a big effort by all of them, but that's an especially big effort by somebody who is um, disabled like that. Yeah, and, and you can see the example of how dedicated he was to this charity and this uh, organisation that provided relief for people and victims of domestic violence. Yes. That he would do something like this to raise money for that organisation. He can see the importance in something like that and put himself out for a period of time, especially with the issues that he suffers with, his blindness and, and being non-verbal. What a, what a powerful story. Absolutely powerful story. And uh, can't help, it, help but contrast it with Facebook, who cut off 1-800-RESPECT, which is uh, to help victims of um, domestic abuse. Just, it's got my blood boiling at the moment. That I, I can see that. I'm just like <laughs> steam coming out of my ears over this one. Um, but, yeah, it's good to see that there are good people out there in the world who – are, you know, despite all of their 
what should you say, um, disabilities are like, yeah, I'm going to do something for, I, I might be disabled, but I'm going to do something for people who are worse, worse off than me. And I think this comes back to that first story where, you know, you sort of start to feel down, you start to feel, you know, um, oppressed by first world problems. <laughs> You look at someone like this guy, he's blind and he's going on a 96-kilometre hike. Not a bad idea. How much was he able to raise? I uh, don't know if it has the actual amount for it, but he said people would stop in their cars and just provide him with money, just seen along the road, realise what was going on, heard about the story in the local news. Yep. And I was stopping and the give guy. donations. Yep. Yep. Collecting donations thing. and you went. It, it's interesting because while I was researching this story and looking at my own experiences being a police officer for seven years in the Hunter Valley area of New South Wales, police deal with, on average in Australia, over 630 domestic violence incidents per day. That's countrywide. Right. But that's huge. That's massive. Is domestic violence, when you're in the police force, was that one of the biggest issues that you dealt with? Bread and butter. Right. That was first. If you went through rankings of issues in the area, it would be domestic violence, drugs, and then probably stolen motor vehicles. Yeah, wow. Okay. That's um, that's pretty sobering. Mm. Well, when I first got in, it was uh, mostly alcohol-related crime. And then as methamphetamine or ice started to become more prevalent, that's the substitute that came out. People were then drug-affected opposed to affected by alcohol. And you can just see the damage it causes to people's lives, and especially when the, the scope for what defines a domestic relationship is so broad – it just created so much more work for us every single day. And 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 as far as attending a domestic violence um, incident, what would your preference be, alcohol field or ice field? I mean, which one are you going to be, which one is more dangerous? Ice is way more dangerous. Way more dangerous. Yeah, they increase strength and aggression. And we had one guy up at the hospital one time and he was just, we had to put him in one side room. He was like a caged animal. The more he circled it, he just got frustrated to the point where he flipped a bed. So he went in and got physical and he was fighting against my co-worker who was six foot something and probably as wide as he was tall with muscles and he was pushing right through him like he was nothing. Yeah, it's that's crazy. Pretty, pretty scary stuff. Drugs are a horrific scourge on our lives and on the lives of our friends and it'll be good to see them gone. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, so heading across to South Australia, um, of course, they have uh, been debating some some marathon late-night debates on the abortion to birth and gender selection abortion legislation. Pretty horrific stuff. And uh, there have been a number of amendments made, um, nothing like the number of amendments that really needed to be made. I mean, the amendment that it really needed was to be chucked out, but um, (laughs) we do need to talk about it. So, oh, I'm on the wrong, wrong page. Give me get the right page of notes. Where did page one go? Here is page one. Here it is. Pulled it out of my notebook. Okay, so abortion to birth has stayed, but gender selection abortion, which is an attack on women, is out. So this is an improvement. This is a slight improvement over the other legislations that have passed through, say, for instance, Victoria and Queensland. We'll do a bit of a comparison with that in just a moment. Uh, but it's good to see that gender selection abortion is out. Um, they have made an amendment to require a duty of care to babies that are born alive. So Queensland, Amen. Victoria, places like that, of course, the baby's born alive. They just wait until it dies. Just no care, no nothing, just 
Or worse in some circumstances. Yeah, let's not even go there. That's too horrific to talk about. Mm. Um, Guidelines to be considered uh, by doctors. So a series of guidelines was outlined that have to be considered by doctors in assessing late-term abortion. And so under the legislation, as it was written, as it was put forward by the Attorney General and the leader of the the government, um, it was... Um, it was basically if the only requirement that doctors had to consider if you were asking for an abortion to birth was that the mother asked for it. Mm. That was the only. Now they've gone a whole whole lot of different guidelines that have to be considered um, in assessing late term abortion. They also require provision of information on counselling to abortion mothers. Well, that's a positive thing. It's a very positive thing because the rate of depression uh, amongst abortion mothers is basically 100%. Yeah. And anyone who suffered from depression knows that that is a really, really terrible, terrible thing to deal with and something that can stay with you for life. And trying to make a decision while you're in a stage like that can just lead to horrible regrets later on in life. That's right. Absolutely. And often these decisions are made, you know... At, in haste. In, in the worst possible circumstances when you really shouldn't be making life-altering decisions either for yourself or for another human being. Mm, definitely. Okay, so if we compare that, so it's this is, this is probably the best of a bad bunch. Uh, we would have liked to have seen a whole bunch more or even the whole thing just get tossed out. Mm, amen. But it's the best of a bad bunch. If you compare that with uh, what Daniel Andrews um, down in Victoria brought through when he was health minister back in 2008... Um, he voted against providing pain relief to a fetus while being, well, aborted, which when it's a fetus, that equals being dismembered. Mm. Now, I know this is hard to talk about, and I know that this is going to, there are a lot of people out there, and I've said this before, who really, really struggle talking about this kind of, and particularly mothers who have been through an abortion. Yep. And I just want to say this. As Christians, we are there to support you before you have an abortion and to provide support for you so you don't have to have one. And then if you choose to have one, we are there to support you afterwards with whatever level of help and care we possibly can. If we weren't, we'd really be doing Christ injustice, wouldn't we? That's right. So 1-800-324-843. Give us a call if, uh, or, or just call Lifeline if this is something that is really painful to think about and to hear, uh, particularly if you this is something that you've been through yourself. Um, so he voted against providing pain relief. He voted against uh, providing medical aid to um, living babies that have survived abortion. He voted against... Um, banning partial birth abortion, which is where you don't kill the baby until the head comes out. He voted against requiring mandatory reporting of of suspected child abuse victims at abortion clinics. Let me just stop there. I want you to just think about that for a moment. This is what was voted against. This is what Daniel Andrews voted against in Victoria. Just, just wrap your head around it. So, so Daniel, you and I have worked. You've worked in Pathfinders. I've worked in ministry. We are mandatory reporters of suspected child abuse. I was a class A, class one reporter in New South Wales Police. In police, every, yeah. Yes. Just any time there was any kind of, even an inference of potential abuse, 
we were straight on the phone and. But if you're a doctor report. and there's the inference of, of of abuse, no. If you're a doctor at an abortion clinic, you're not a mandatory reporter. Daniel Andrews voted against making them mandatory reporters. Uh, he voted against requiring information on the health risks of abortion. So you go in there. You know when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, okay, we're going to do this procedure. Uh, these are the pros and these are the cons. And these are the possible risks. It's nice to know those possible risks before you have that procedure, right? Of course. You, you 100% want as much information as possible so that you can make the best possible choice for you at that time. So Daniel Andrews voted against providing that to mothers when they went for an abortion. In other words, let's make it as easy as possible to kill these babies. Um, he voted against offering women impartial counselling. So this is not you know, counselling that is against abortion. This is just impartial counselling. Impartial counselling is where you sit down and say, okay, these are the pros and the cons. These are the emotional effects of having a child. These are the emotional effects of having an abortion. Uh, and you need you, – you, no, no impartial counselling allowed. You can really see. So the only kind of counselling allowed, sorry, I butted in. That's right. But the only kind of counselling allowed is counselling you must have an abortion. Yep. And, and you can see how this, this builds up to that point of they're really making it one choice. That we're pushed away from a particular circumstance. They're really trying to drive their agenda and push it over top of people who want to be able to have a free choice and understanding of what's going on in their lives at that time. Absolutely. He voted against, swallow this one, he voted against, this is Daniel Andrews in Victoria, voted against notifying custodial parents of a child seeking abortion. So, you know, you're about to become a, I'm about to become a, you're, you're not, you're, you've just become a father. I'm about to become a grandfather. Yeah. And which is like, for me, just, you know, the most special thing ever. I cannot even imagine a world in which a child would go for an abortion and their parents wouldn't be notified and couldn't be part of that conversation and couldn't say, look, we'll support you, we will raise the child. Yeah. We, there's all kinds of different options here. We just want to pour our love and affection, you know. Especially when there's capacity for a loving family to be involved. That's well. right. That's and right. It eliminates that possibility. Yeah. Like you have children, I have children. Yes. And once they're born, your understanding of God being our father just increases so much more because you have your own baby there and you go, I would do anything for this child. And you can see that society's trying to stop us from being Yeah, well we didn't get to the we didn't get to the Facebook story, but we will get there. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, joining us on the phone this morning is Eliza Ma, our resident historian. Eliza, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lyle. It's great to be on. Super excited to uh, dig into this subject today. So for those of you who don't know Eliza, she is, well, kind of a specialist in Australian history. We've been talking about some uh, famous Australians. This one will be right up your alley, uh, Daniel, as as an ex-police officer, because I understand, Eliza, this morning, we're going to be talking about none other than Ned Kelly. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Ned Kelly, the famous bush ranger and Ned Uwell. That's right. We'll be discussing him today. Okay, so I've got a couple of um a couple of uh, questions I guess, you know, when it comes to the Ned Kelly's, why why is this particular guy so famous? I mean, you know, he wasn't the most successful bush ranger, you know, Ben Hall pulled off like 100 plus robberies. He wasn't the longest surviving, you know, Mundan Joe lived to age 72. 
didn't have the largest body count. There were only about uh, 30 odd police at uh, Glen Rowan, whereas um, for Jim, Jimmy Governor, there was about 2,000 plus police officers chasing him down. Why has Ned Kelly become such a cultural icon? And, and before you answer that, I just want to toss this in there just for, for Daniel's sake, because he is an ex police officer and, you know, I think a lot of us might just look at him as another, you know, ill-disciplined, delinquent criminal kid. Mm-hmm. He grows up in low socioeconomic, you know, drug-fueled, right. dysfunctional, single-parent home, um, mm-hmm. a victim mentality, hatred of the police, becomes in violent, involved in violent gangs and murder, mm-hmm. and yet he's become a cultural icon. What's going on there? And, and, and I have to ask. I have to ask Daniel: Is this the kind of picture that we often uh, that we often see with um, you know young people go for, going astray? Yeah. Well, what you rattle off just there, I could basically point out houses and areas that people <laughs> I know would fit that description. But I, I think there's certainly a degree of anti-authoritarianism there that people can really get behind. I think, you know, we stand up for the little guy. And when you look at the capacity he's had in his life, like if I, if I grew up in Ned Kelly's circumstances, would I have been Ned Kelly? If he grew up in my life circumstances, would he have been Daniel Colley with his loving family and growth and all the blessings that he has? So I think that's something particularly to look at in the importance of his history too. Why have Australians related so much to Ned Kelly, Eliza? Australians have related to Ned Kelly because they saw him not as a bushranger, but as someone who stood up to government, to um, police corruption. Um, Matt Kelly was not popular for all of his career. He was only, people were um, disgusted and outraged when he um, murdered two police officers. But, and and then it just spiraled from there. But people um, were fascinated by him and and, um, even supported him um, because he stood up to an unaccountable and and very young police force um, in Victoria. Um, As you said, absolutely, his father died when he was 12, and before that his father was um, an alcoholic, and um, we can fill in the gaps there about how he treats his family. Um, And... Ned Kelly was the eldest son in the family. At the age of 12, he had to take over uh, a small holding um, and look after the family. And you can imagine the kind of pressure on a 12-year-old. And then, of course, the Irish Catholic gangs that were around were available for him to tap into. And you can easily see um, a youth like that thinking, maybe this is my only option. Um, or maybe this is the easiest option. And so Ned Kelly himself um, had absolutely a victim mentality. Irish Catholics um, were were known as lesser evolved um, in Australia at the time and um, were known as uh, drunkards who never did a hard day's work in their lives. Um, Irish Catholics were discriminated against. But Ned Kelly took that on himself and even when he met with policemen who were Irish Catholics, um, he treated them just the same as any other police officers. 
Yes, that's interesting because there were some police officers who actually appealed to him on the fact of, you know, that they were of the same that's religion. Right. So, and and it, right. it very much fell on, on deaf ears for Ned Kelly. I guess that um, mm. he had, uh, you know, taken a particular path. Was the majority of the police force, when we talk about the, you, you took, mentioned that the police force was very young. Did we have a situation where the majority of the police force was, say, you know, um, Anglican or Protestant uh, from England? And then you had the majority of the low socioeconomic um, population in Australia that were Irish Catholic. Was that kind of a division that was both religious and uh, socio-political at the time? I'm not aware of a division like that, but the police force was not an an institution filled with um, people from the upper class. Um, The police force was not... Uh, being a policeman wasn't a particularly respectable position. It, it wasn't considered a profession, certainly. And um, in those days, it was um, you know, Ned Kelly. If he had uh, grown to adulthood and um, had different influences, uh, he might have become a police officer himself. Um, I'm not aware of any any racial or religious element to that. But um, the the um, police force was uh, the Victorian police force was um, formed in 1853, which was a year before Ned Kelly was born. Um, so it was a very young police force. Police forces in general um, were were very young before the middle of the 1800s. Um, the army had been used to maintain order. And so even in the UK, uh, a police force wasn't formed until the middle of the 19th century. Um, so I'm not sure we can read too much into um, a real prejudice in the police force other than the kind of, of um, petty corruption that exists in any new institution that isn't really sure what it's doing and doesn't know what loopholes need to be closed. I think it was... It was a more simple affair than that. Mm, okay. Now, um, I, I guess my next question is that, um, which sort of follows along, because I'm, I'm particularly, you know, obviously we're interested in the religious background here, um, mm. and and that comes down to why why was it that the majority of bush rangers in Australia were were actually Roman Catholic as opposed to Protestant? I mean, this is a time in which if you're a white person in Australia, you were a Christian and you were either going to be in the Catholic camp or the Protestant camp. And mm-hmm. we, we, we've seen, yeah. you know, how the whole conflict in Ireland itself, um, mm-hmm. you know, people my age can remember back to the time of the Troubles when mm-hmm. it was a massive conflict, conflict between Protestants and Catholics and Ireland has been split over it. Is that what was happening here in Australia? Is that why we had so many Catholic bushrangers as opposed to Protestant bushrangers? I think what we had in Australia, and especially Ned Kelly was a very late bushranger. It, it wasn't profitable anymore for Ned Kelly to be a bushranger. He didn't have any... Um, the, the, the police force was strong enough that bushranging wasn't a great option for anyone. Um, I think where Ned Kelly went wrong with his faith was that he made um, being 
he took on that victim mentality. He bore resentment within himself. He saw that no one's going to believe me um, and no one would. He felt that the police force wasn't there for him, that it wouldn't defend him, um, that it wasn't on his side. And yes, maybe his maybe his um, local the the local policeman he had a lot of interactions with wasn't a trustworthy character, but it's it's that spirit of resentment that scripture constantly warns against. Um, that you know, vengeance is mine; I will repay, says the Lord. And that's where he really went wrong. I think it's um, the situation in Victoria was not like Ireland in the Troubles. It was in Ned Kelly's imagination. But the actual situation in Victoria was was certainly um, there was there was certainly tension between um, Irish Catholics and Protestants. Um, but how that expressed itself would differ vastly from community to community. And I mean, even as late as the nineteen seventies and eighties, um, you had. Uh, job advertisements in rural newspapers in Victoria saying, oh, Catholics need not apply or Protestants need not apply. Um, this rift between Protestants and Catholics is very deep-seated. Um, I think especially in Victoria that had so many Irish immigrants compared to the other states. But in terms of actual prejudice within the police force, there seems to be very little evidence of that. There was prejudice against Ned Kelly because his family was involved in gangs and he was a suspect. And um, because he hung out with a bad lot, he was sometimes unfairly implicated in um, things that they were doing. So so I'm not sure it's, it's quite fair to characterize Ned Kelly as purely a victim of um, religious prejudice. Sure. I, I guess the other big thing that was at play at this time, uh, which I, I, a lot of people are maybe a little bit less familiar with, is the conflict between the selectors and the squatterocracy. Um, mm-hmm. Could you comment on that briefly? Right. So... Um, in, in the early days when Australia was colonised, um, uh, there was very little order in how it happened. People basically went out from Sydney and just started grazing bits of land. And this was Indigenous land and the government had no control over it. Um, the government didn't have the power to regulate these squatters that were just taking over land. And the squatters became very wealthy off the back of wool. And then the whole colony started to be financially dependent on these squatters, um, which obviously was um, you know, very morally suspect. Um, and the way that the government, and, and especially um, the uh, British administration back in London tried to make this legal again was introducing selectors. Now, selectors were often uh, poor immigrant families who um, 
arrived in Melbourne or arrived in Adelaide or Sydney and they went to the selecting office and said, we'd like a small farm, can we manage that? Sometimes they, uh, occasionally they would give out farms for free. Um, Ned Kelly's father was successful on the gold fields and so he bought a small holding. But this small holding was on squatter land and so there was there was a lot of tension, obviously, between you know, am I growing potatoes here, or is so and so rich fellow up in the mansion down the road grazing his sheep? Um, that was a a political tension that spilled over into the lives of individuals, and um, a lot of the early um, gang associated. <laughs> work that Ned Kelly did was in um, cattle stealing from the local squatter and, and allegedly horse stealing. And so absolutely there was this tension uh, simmering under the surface because, well, is it indigenous land or is it squatter land? Or, well, my father did buy this land as well um, because it was a young colony and no one quite knew what they were doing. Um, and the government had only just tried to regulate um, the, the appropriation of land. So part of this was um, a actually just a dry um, governmental issue where and, and um, another another element of this, another way of viewing it is that um, there's a very strong attitude in Australia even today, that we don't want the government to interfere in our lives. And we just want the government to be over there somewhere managing people other than us and um, let us um, live our own lives. And it was was very strong even in those days. Mm. Um, Eliza Ma, we are running a little short on time here, but uh, I could – uh, this is this is a subject and an individual who I find most fascinating. I think I could spend a lot of talk, time talking and exploring, you know, um, issues like, uh, you know, what was Ned Kelly's larger motivations? Did he have larger motivations, or was he just a just a criminal? Did he was he trying to spark a a revolution? I mean, we've never had a revolution here, a revolutionary war here in Australia. A couple of you know failed attempts. We can think of Vinegar Hill. We can think of uh, Eureka, which were very very small events. Um, and then, of course, we've got uh, Ned Kelly coming on at this stage, and some people have interpreted, you know, the various letters that he wrote as being declarations to start a, uh, a war of independence. But at the end of the day, um, what lessons can we learn? I mean, this guy is a household name. There are so many other bushrangers out there who did so much more than what Ned Kelly did, more in a bad sense, but that is right. so much more than Ned Kelly did. Why is Ned Kelly a household name and what are the lessons that we need to take away from this? The lessons that we need to draw from Ned Kelly's life is, first of all, if you know a young person who doesn't know where they're going and doesn't have um, direction from adults in their lives, if you know a young person that's vulnerable to getting in with the wrong crowd, please don't condescend to them, but come alongside them and 
give, show them through your life uh, what is possible in theirs. Mm. Amen. First of all. Um, secondly, you may think you've had a rough life. You may think that you had a tough and you probably have. You may feel that the world has done you wrong, but if you let that resentment take over the way you make decisions, if you come back to that resentment when you are feeling emotional or when you fail and when you blame things that have happened in your past for the decisions that you make today, you set yourself on a road that leads down to destruction. And whatever has happened in your life, God is able to redeem that. Amen. God is able to restore you. And if you put your life in his hands, God can bring about beautiful things in it. Eliza Ma, thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM this morning. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.